Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome to our church podcast. As you know, we want to help you get the most out of the new year, so we've come up with a way to help you engage with our content in a unique way. It's called 90, because believe it or not, there are 90 days between January 1st and Easter. So over these 90 days, we're going to journey through the life of Jesus every Sunday and then give you a chance to dive in deeper during the week through two additional connecting points designed to challenge and perhaps change you. To find out how you can get connected and sign up for the additional content, just go to 90.today. That's 90.today, 90.today. Well, the following presentation is actually part of the 90-day content, and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Here we go. This series is actually just a journeying with Jesus from the time he stepped onto the pages of history as an adult to the time that he was crucified and ultimately rose from the dead. We're going to look at some of his most significant conversations. We're going to look at his most significant encounters, his most significant teaching. From his introduction to being um, a teacher in the world to ultimately going on to be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And the thing that we're going to talk about throughout this series that may be new, um, honestly, it may be a bit disturbing. Um, When we get to week four, uh, you may wonder whether or not you should continue with us. What we're going to talk about and focus on is the thing that I think is most missed about the life in the person of Jesus. And it's one of the reasons perhaps you've been so confused by religion, maybe why you've been so confused by church and Christianity. Jesus, when you read the Gospels, it it couldn't be any clearer. I don't know how we've missed it. Jesus came into the world to introduce something brand new to the world. He did not come to extend something that was old. He did not come to simply complete the Bible so we'd have both a New Testament and an Old Testament. He didn't come to create Judaism 2.0. That he came to do something brand new to the world, brought something brand new to the world, and not just to the world, but for the world, as we're going to talk about today. Now, um, every headliner needs a warm-up act, somebody to come out and get the crowd all warmed up. And interestingly enough, in the first century, Jesus had a warm-up act. He, he really did. From the Jordan River Basin, draped in animal skins with locust breath, please welcome, okay? John the Baptist steps onto the pages of history, really, literally, as the opening act for Jesus. Now, you've heard of John the Baptist. The reason he was called John the Baptist is not because he wasn't John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian or John the Episcopalian. He was called John the Baptist because John, as far as we can tell in history, this is pretty significant. John is the first person who ever manhandled another person and baptized them. Baptism at this point in the first century was part of a multifaceted process that a non-Jewish person would go through to become Jewish. There was a meal, there were things you had to learn. And then as part of becoming a Jewish person or being part of the covenant, you had to be baptized. And baptism was a ceremonial washing where you decide I'm dying to my Gentileness and I'm coming alive to my Jewishness. But you did this alone or you certainly, no one was touching you when you did this. And John the Baptist comes to the Jordan River and he's actually physically baptizing people. And so he got this nickname, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Now there are four gospel accounts of the, four accounts of the life of Jesus, as you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Luke, who opens his account by saying, and you're going to hear me say this anytime I mention Luke, he opens his account by saying, I thoroughly investigated all of these things and I have created for you a chronological account of the things, and I love this, of the things that happened in our midst, that happened here, that Luke was writing history. And here is his introduction to Jesus' opening act John the Baptist. Here's how he put it. In the 15th year, 
In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome who followed Caesar Augustus, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, that whole area, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, that other large area, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, if you ever read the Bible, you get to these parts, and you go, yeah, 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 whatever, let's get to the good part, Right? This is extraordinary. Let me tell you why this is extraordinary. This is Luke saying to skeptics, fact check me, I dare you. In other words, this is not a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, it doesn't really matter if it ever happened. I'm about to tell you a story. This is not once upon a time in a place you never heard of. Luke's saying, no, what I'm about to tell you happened in history. And what he does is remarkable because he's so meticulous. In fact, anytime we get to the, the, the teachings of Luke, there's so, there's so much detail. He is a historian's dream. He says, let me start at the macro level. The emperor of Rome, the governors of Judea and Galilee, the sub-governors of the province, the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem. Do I have your attention? Is everybody with me? Does everybody know what period of time I'm talking about and who these people are? And his first century audience was like, we are with you. And historians who don't even take the account of Jesus' life and Luke seriously are like, this is amazing stuff. And he goes on and he says this, here's what happened. The word of God came to John, this is John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Now, Luke has thoroughly investigated these things and here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, this isn't a dozen people listening to a crazy man preach on the side of the Jordan River, okay, on the bank of the Jordan River. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea, Judea was like this enormous area and the whole region went out to see John. So thousands of people are going down to the middle of really nowhere that's difficult to get to, especially if you're from Jerusalem. If you were in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it would take, you'd have to get up before sunrise. You'd get there after sunset and hope the next day you could find this guy. So this is not a convenient trip. And on the banks of the Jordan River, John the Baptist begins to preach and teach and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came. And this was a problem. This was a problem because every once in a while in Judea or Galilee, somebody would rise up and be a wannabe Messiah. And the Jewish leaders would have to try to calm them down before there was an insurrection and then Rome would have to get involved and then it was bloody. And then the Roman governor would have to sit down with the temple leaders and say, look, can you keep these people under control? Because if you can't keep them under control, we'll keep them under control. You won't like the way we keep them under control. And thanks to King Herod and his sons, things had gone along pretty well for a few years. And suddenly on the banks of the Jordan River, there's this guy who's saying all kinds of things, preaching all kinds of things and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in the region show up to listen to him. But it wasn't just the sermons that disturbed the temple leaders. They showed up confessing their sins. Now, this is unheard of. Now, we we read this as English Bible readers in the 21st century. It's like, yeah, so what? No, this was unheard of. You see, the Jewish people in the first century and the centuries preceding the first century, they had a very sophisticated system for how you confessed your sins. 
There was a way you did this. There was an order of things. And ultimately, if you lived in the vicinity of Jerusalem, you went to the temple and you brought a sacrifice. And there were certain sacrifices and certain things that you sacrificed for certain kinds of sins, certain kinds of things you had to say to the priest or the high priest or the not so high priest or the priest assistant. Or you perhaps, if you didn't live close to Jerusalem, you went to the synagogue, but you found somebody in charge. You found an official. You found somebody with some authority and you confessed your sin and you decided what you would have to do to be forgiven and what kind of hoops you would have to jump through much like many religious systems have today. So here's a nobody in the middle of nowhere and people are, con are confessing their sins to him. He's, he's acting like a walking, talking temple. You know, who is this guy? But it wasn't just confessing sins. It was the thing that gave him his nickname that was most disturbing at all. Not only did they confess their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, if you're, if you're gonna be baptized within the context of what baptism meant in the first century, you had to have permission. There were, you couldn't just show up and be baptized. How do we even know what that meant? And besides that, these are Jewish people and Jewish people don't need to be baptized. They're already Jews. They're already part of the covenant of Abraham. This was so extraordinarily disruptive. No authority, no education, no backing, N nobody behind him, no, no explanation. Just this wild-eyed, crazy preacher in the middle of nowhere making claims and the whole countryside flocked to hear him. The text tells us that he came, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not John the Baptist, John that followed Jesus that ultimately wrote this down. He says he came, John the Baptist came as a witness to testify in the Greek, it's like he came as a witness to witness or a testifier to testify, same word. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light because when John, the gospel writer John referred to Jesus, it's so fascinating, we've talked about this. He, this is John who saw the whole thing and we're gonna talk a lot about John in the weeks to come. But John is an older man looking back as he tried to get, wrap his mind around the fact that Jesus, his friend, was a body, was a physical person and yet he contained this light that was light for the whole world so he used that imagery. He came, John the Baptist came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. And John, John the Baptist, John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this was, this was John the Baptist. Now, this is what he was preaching about. His, this was his message. He cried out saying, this is the one talking about Jesus who hadn't shown up yet. This is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's like, okay, <laughs> what? Do what? John, you're gonna have to back up. Yes, he, he who was, comes after me, he's not here yet, has surpassed me because he was before me. Okay, what are you talking about? John's like, okay, maybe I went through, through that too quickly. I'm just telling you, I got here first, but he got here before I got here, but you haven't seen him yet. And when he shows up, oh my goodness, get ready. And then a little foreshadowing. As John, the gospel writer, John describes John the Baptist's message. For the law, for the law was given through Moses. Now here comes the tension. Here comes foreshadowing of tension that will follow Jesus through his entire ministry for the law was given through Moses. And as you know, in the first century, the law was everything to the Jews. For many Jews today, the law is still everything. And the law was housed in the temple in the Holy of Holies. It was the place that only the high priest could go once a year. And they tied a rope around his ankle. This is tradition says they tied a rope around his ankle in case he died in there. They'd pull him out because nobody's going in there. And so in the temple is the Holy of Holies and in the Holy of Holies is, is whatever was left over of the Ark. By this time in history, there probably wasn't any part of the Ark of the Covenant left, but there was some semblance of the word or the text or the, the scripture, the Torah, the law of God. The, the law was everything. Moses was everything. Moses was the lawgiver. 
Rabbis could comment on the law of Moses, but you didn't create new laws. Rabbis could illustrate the law of Moses, but you didn't create new laws. You could talk about it, but you did not mess with it. The the Jewish law governed every facet of Jewish life in the first century. People died for the Torah. People died to protect the temple. And so John says, looking back at this incident with John the Baptist showing up on the riverbank, he says, he said, the, the, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This was a contrast. Something new was in the works. Something new was coming. This is not an and. This is an instead of. Now, this was John's testimony. This was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So here's what happened. So there's this big disturbance. All this stuff's going on the Jordan River. Nobody's shopping at the temple. Everybody's shopping down at the new mall, you know, down by the river. So all the people up at the temple are thinking, you know, what's going on? All the temple leaders are nervous. So the temple leaders, the high priest and his folks get the, sort of the underlings, you know, the not so high priest and the not so cool Levites. And they say, look, it's a long way to the Jordan River. Would you go down there and find out what's going on, get a report, find out who this guy is, see if you can get an appointment with him and then come back and tell us what's going on. Because, you know, we don't want to go. We don't want to mess with that. It's a long way down there and, and who knows what, what, what we would run into. And so the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem, you know, a little bit more than a day's journey away, sends this group of people to find out who is John the Baptist and what is his message all about. And he, John, did not fail to confess, but confess freely. And this is kind of the the picture. I don't know if this is accurate, but the way it's written, it looks like John's doing his thing. You know, he finishes a sermon, baptizes a few people, steps out of the Jordan River, and he sees the guys in the black robes all coming down with their cool tassels, and everybody's making a way for them because they carry authority. They've come from Jerusalem, and they're making their way toward him. And John knows what they're going to ask. They want to know, who are you and by whose authority are you doing these things and preaching these messages? And are you another wannabe pretend Messiah? Because you know, those happen every once in a while. And if you claim to be the Messiah, you got to come to Jerusalem. We got to ask you a few questions and, you know, find out what's going on. So he knows what they've come to ask. And it's as if before they get to him and ask him the question, he goes ahead and he answers And he says, I am not the Messiah. Before they can ask the question, I know what you're here for. No, I'm not the Messiah. So they said, well, then, are you Elijah? And the reason they ask, are you Elijah, is because the last book of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, um, the, Jewish, the Hebrew Bible, is, and the English version of it, is Malachi. And Malachi was the last prophet. In fact, when Malachi finished, he turned off the lights, shut the door, and left. And no, God didn't say anything for 400 years, or there's no evidence or any you know, written revelation from God for 400 years. But in Malachi, the prophet Malachi says, before God does his next big thing, Before Messiah, before the great day of the Lord, there will be a prophet, Elijah, that comes in the the spirit of Elisha or perhaps a reincarnated Elisha. And he's gonna come and prepare the people. So they're like, okay, well, if you're not the Messiah, are you the guy that comes before the Messiah? Are you Elijah? I said Elisha, but Elijah. And he says, nope, I'm I'm not him. And they said, well, then are you the prophet? Because Moses and the the Qumran community had taught that there would be some great prophet that rose up to prepare the people before God did something greater, his next big thing in the nation. And he answered, no, that's not who I am either. So finally they said, okay, enough with these silly questions. Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who send us. What do you say about yourself? I mean, we can't go back home and say, well, we know who he's not. We gotta know who he is. 
We got to know whose authority and, you're, and whose authority you're speaking and where did you get these crazy ideas? And come on, you can't let people confess sin down here at the river. You confess sin up on the hill at the altar in Jerusalem. You're acting like a portable temple. What's up? Who are you? And John replied by quoting the prophet Isaiah. He said, I am, if you want to know who I am, I'm the voice. I'm just the voice. I'm not the guy. I'm not the one. I'm not the person. I'm just a voice of one calling in the wilderness. That's why I'm not in the temple. It's not why I'm up and out on the hill. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. In other words, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. God is about to do his next thing. I'm just the warm up act. I'm just here to gather the people and to get people to be prepared for what God is about to do. And those who have pure hearts will recognize what he's up to. And those who are ready and those who've repented of their sin and those who have opened their minds and opened to their hearts to the fact that God is about to do something new, those will be the people who recognize God's next move. And so that's why I'm here. And yes, I'm allowing people to confess their sins. Heads up, something greater than the temple is about to come. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him and they said, well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Okay, if you're not any of these people, what about this baptism thing? I mean, nobody's ever done that before. You've even got a nickname. I mean, what's up with that? And he says, I tell you what, I baptize with water. He kind of avoided their question. I baptize with water, John replied, but I'm telling you, among you stands one you do not know, literally, one you do not recognize. And guys, look around. You think I'm a big deal? You think I've drawn a big crowd? You think I've unsettled things? You think I've made you nervous and your bosses nervous and Pilate nervous? You think this is something big? You've not seen anything yet. He, the one who's to come after me, the main act, he is the one that he is the one who comes after me and the straps of his sandals. I'm not even worthy to untie. I'm a nobody. I mean, I look like a somebody. Look at this crowd. But I'm telling you, compared to who's coming next, I am a nobody. I am not even worthy to bend down and unlace his sandals. Well, that's not much of an answer. So they go back up to Jerusalem. It's like, okay, we know who he's not. We're not sure who he is. He quoted some verses from our scripture. And so the high priest and his guys are like, oh, okay, we're gonna have to go down there ourselves. Now, this was a really bad decision on their part, but they decided to do it anyway. So they get up way early in the morning and they probably come with a caravan with tents and food and all. I mean, it, it's an entourage for sure, all tricked out SUVs, you know, they're this because they're like the guys, you know? And the people have so much respect for these people. I mean, the high priest, I mean, this is the guy that gets to go into the Holy of Holies. I mean, this is like when this group shows up, everybody gets out of the way and they, they kind of bow. I mean, these are the people that when you bring your grain offering and your goat offering and your kids to the temple for the first time, it's like, there's so-and-so and there's so-and-so and they're perfect. They smell good. They look good. They dress well. They keep the law. If God was going, if God was going to do anything in the world, this, this would be the first group to know. And so they show up and again, John's doing his thing and he's preaching and teaching and baptizing people. And he sees up on the hill, here they come, kind of snaking their way down to the Jordan River Basin. I mean, it's a whole bunch of people and they're all riding donkeys and mules. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, that first group, that was kind of a big deal. This is like a really big deal. And the people are stirring and they're talking, they're looking over their shoulder because they, they've never seen these folks even leave the city of Jerusalem. 
And here they are to see John. I mean, talk about gifts John some status. I mean, they came to him. He didn't even have to go to them and make an appointment. This is a big deal, a big day. The crowd parts and they make their way toward John. Imagine this moment. And there's John with his disheveled hair and his overgrown beard and whatever animal skins he's wearing. Smells like he's lived his whole life outdoors. And here comes the most sophisticated, buttoned up, oiled hair group of people that, you know, in the, in the nation. And as they get closer and closer and closer, before they're close enough to have a private conversation, here's what happened. But when he saw many, not just a few, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, two groups of people we'll talk about later, who didn't even get along, coming to where he was, he said to them out loud in front of everyone, you brood of vipers. I mean, a hush went over the crowd. Nobody talks to these guys like this. Are you kidding? I mean, th these are the holiest of holy. These people, their full-time job is to be good. That's what they do. What do you do? I'm good. I'm just good. I'm so good that if God were to do something, I would recognize it. I, I'm a good person. And, and he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you? Because see, everybody coming to the Jordan River was coming to be baptized and repent of their sins. And all of a sudden it looks like they're coming to be baptized and to repent of their sins. He knew better. The people wondered, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Something is coming. You think I'm something? I'm nothing. Something is coming. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now talk about a dig. I mean, there was a murmur in the crowd. Essentially, John the Baptist is telling the holiest men in the whole country, repent of your sin. And don't tell me you prayed some magic prayer in the privacy of your home. I wanna see fruit. I wanna see evidence. These are the law keepers. And Jesus and then John the Baptist was saying, you're lawbreakers and I know what's in you. And here's the tension, here's the friction, here's the grit that would be part of the story of Jesus of Nazareth throughout his public ministry. It started right here because John the Baptist was giving everybody a heads up. In fact, he's giving you a heads up, giving me a heads up. He was giving his audience a heads up that the days of compassionless, the days of compassionless loophole religion were coming to an end, were coming to a close. The days where you could hide behind your walls and pray secret prayers and give secret money and nobody knew what you were doing and then you know, have a lack of compassion because well, no wonder she's sick and no wonder he's dying and no wonder he's blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. And you know, I don't really have to take care of my aging parents because what do you know, mom and dad, I'm so sorry. I devoted everything to God. Now I get to live off of it, but I can't help you because I gave all my wealth to God. Good luck in your old age. John the Baptist gives him a heads up. That is coming to a screeching halt. That is coming to an end. Prepare yourself for the wrath of God, oh, you religious leaders, you. It was a very short conversation. And they turned around and they left. And then it happened. The moment the nation had been waiting for, the moment the world, even though the world didn't know, had been waiting for, Here's how it went down. Then it all, this all happened at Bethany. Notice the detail. This all happened at Bethany. Well, Bethany, where in, oh yeah. On the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, after they left, apparently. The next day, John saw Jesus 
coming toward him. No animals, no caravan, no food, no tents, no entourage. He saw Jesus coming toward him. Now let's just pause in this moment and imagine. In this moment, there's Jesus who knows who Jesus is. And there's John the Baptist who knows who Jesus is. And in this moment, perhaps time could stand still for just a moment. And John sees Jesus and Jesus sees John. And this is the hinge. This is the transition. This is an encounter that would ultimately change the world because in this encounter, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, steps into history as an adult. God in a body for the first and probably last time is about to go public and things would never be the same. In fact, regardless of whether you're a religious person or not or a Christian, or maybe you're part of another religion or no religion, or you used to be, you grew up in church and something happened. Here's what's undeniable. In this moment, in this moment, in this moment, things begin to change and they would never go, it would never go back in the box. And we are here today and there are people all over the world today gathered in the name of Jesus and this was the moment it all began. And think, this is the part I can't get over. I don't even know if I know how to talk about it accurately. Think about how fragile this moment is. It's just two men. It's just two men. In a world where people's lives can be snuffed out with no accountability and and no trial afterwards, just these two men, the whole thing hangs in the balance of these two men. And all eyes are on John the Baptist. They've been on, his, on him for a while. And he says, I love this. He says, look. Look. Not believe. Not imagine. Not pretend. Not check your brain at the door. Not, don't look over there, you might not, like, might not like what you see. John the Baptist invites his audience. I think he invites you. I think he invites me. He says, look. And everybody turns. And he says, look, the Lamb of God. And for those who'd grown up in Jewish Sunday school, they all knew the story. Maybe their minds went to that story they'd been taught as children when Abraham was gonna sacrifice his own son and, and God provided a lamb. And John says, look, the lamb of God, the lamb, literally the lamb that comes from God, literally the lamb that God provided, that God has provided. Look, there's the lamb of God who takes away, who lifts up and carries off. And everybody in that audience knew what, that, what the point of providing a lamb was. Who lifts up and carries off the sin. The sin, wait, 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 John, wait, this is going too fast for us. Okay, you were baptizing, that was weird. We were confessing our sins. We, we are so many miles away from Jerusalem. We're so many miles away from the temple. We're so many miles away from the altar. And now you're saying that God has provided a lamb and he didn't provide the lamb at the altar in the temple the way it's supposed to go down. He's provided a lamb way out here in the middle of nowhere for a whole bunch of nobodies. This is, this is moving too fast. It's all so new. But that was nothing compared to what came next. If all their categories had not been blown up until that point, this is where they just could no longer suspend their imagination. Who comes to take away the sin of the world? Okay, John. Wait, 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 wait. God, wait, God. 
God's going to forgive all the sin in the world? Even, I mean, even non-Jewish sin? Like, the sin of our enemies? Roman sin? John, why would he do that? I mean, come on, John, you're a good Jewish boy. You know this, Jesus. Hang on for just a second. We got we to talk about this. John, look, look. Our entire religious system, John, you know this. Our entire religious system is designed to keep us separated from the world. We don't eat their food. We don't wear their clothes. We don't marry their daughters. Their sons don't get to marry our daughters. We don't even go in their homes. They don't even come into our homes. In fact, up at the temple, there's only a little bitty area that they can even go into. The rest of it's you know, designed just for Jewish people or people who've converted to Judaism in a first century kind of way. I mean, come on, John. Our whole history is marked by struggle against the other nations. Our whole history is marked by struggle against foreign gods, in fact, foreign nations. In fact, Anytime there are foreigners on our land, we just assume we're under the judgment of God. And if God were for us, he would, you know, throw them out of our land. I mean, come on, we're waiting for a Messiah that's like Joshua, who's going to come expel the enemy. I mean, our whole frame of reference is us and them, and God is for us and he's not for them. And you're telling us that God has provided a lamb to take away the sin of the whole world? That instead of being against Somehow we're to believe that God is for. This was the tension that Jesus stepped into. This was the tension that created so much conflict. And as we're gonna see, this is a tension that continues to create conflict for some of us today. Because perhaps this is the part no one told you, that Jesus was a bridge between two covenants that Jesus was a bridge between two value systems, that Jesus was a bridge between two different sets of laws and commandments, that Jesus was a bridge between two different world views, and that God long before Moses had promised Abraham that he would become a family, that would become a nation, and through that nation, the entire world would be blessed. But through the centuries that ensued, the nation of Israel somehow lost sight of the fact that they were not the end, They were simply a temporary means to a glorious worldwide end. That they were God's chosen people, but they were God's chosen people as if they were a cocoon. And from that cocoon would be birthed life and light for the whole world. And John the Baptist's point was to prepare people and to cause them to think back and to remember that we are a means to an end. And the good news is the end has come that God is finally going to do that thing that we prayed for, looked forward to, and celebrated as we thought about the future. That he was the bridge between an old and a new covenant, and he was born under one to introduce the other. He was born under one covenant to introduce and ultimately, as we'll see, to cancel out the other. The first covenant was a covenant between God and a nation that was instituted on Mount Sinai when God brought Moses up and gave Moses all the commandments, 600 plus commands and said, this is how you are to operate. This is how the civil law is to be. This is how the nation is to operate as I prepare them for what I will ultimately do in the world. Because ultimately I will establish a new covenant, not with a nation but with all the nations. But come on, you know this from personal experience. Transitions are hard, aren't they? Transitions are stressful. That old ways die hard. That those who profit most 
from the status quo are least inclined to let it go. Isn't that true? And when Jesus showed up, this is difficult for some of us, maybe because of how we were raised. But when Jesus showed up, the temple system was very wealthy, very powerful. And according to Jesus, it was totally from top to bottom corrupt. Jesus never had one good thing to say about the temple or the temple system in his ministry. And this is difficult for us. For those of us who grew up in Sunday school, we know that God ultimately established the sacrificial system. He didn't establish the temple, but he established the sacrificial system and the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Tabernacle and all those things that were to remind Israel that they were his special people. But when Jesus showed up, it was so corrupt. He had nothing good to say about it. And this very system would ultimately join forces with the kingdoms of this world, Rome, and crucify him. But what was designed to be an end was only the beginning of something brand new. Jesus came to establish three new things, and we'll close with this, because this is basically what we're gonna talk about for the next few weeks. He came to establish, as I've already said, a brand new covenant, a brand new arrangement between God and mankind, a brand new arrangement between God and you. He came to replace the old one with a new one. And here's the part that we'll struggle with for the next few weeks. He came to replace the value system and the teaching of everything between Exodus and Malachi in your English Bible. In fact, the version of faith that you grew up with, it was perhaps confusing. And you read the New Testament and the Old Testament and you think, how do these two things go together? And if if your pastor was like so many pastors, pastors have a tendency to shave off all the rough edges of the New Testament and shave off all the rough edges of the Old Testament to try to make them work together. And we're gonna discover that Jesus never suggested any of that. That Jesus was gonna say, as we'll see in week four, you can put a fork in it, you can put a bow on it. It's done, it's over. The new has come and the old has passed away. The Bible is God's word, but every word in the Bible is not for everybody. And when we think it is, we create unnecessary confusion. In fact, if you think it is, it may be the reason you left the Christian faith. In fact, I'll say this as I've said so many times, if you left the Christian faith for anything in the first half of your Bible, I think you may have left unnecessarily to stick around. The second thing that Jesus came to introduce that was new, was a new command. This is so powerful, we'll get to this. That Jesus, and this was such a point of contention, and again, as English 21st century Bible readers, we miss this. This was such a point of contention because there was only one lawgiver and the lawgiver was Moses. And Jesus kept setting himself up against Moses and they would be like, who do you think you are? Moses said, Moses said, Moses said. And in in Jesus' most famous sermon, he said, you have heard it said, but I say, you have heard it said, but I say. And they're going, yeah, we've heard it said. Moses said it. Who are you to set yourself up against Moses? There is only one lawgiver. Who do you think you are? And Jesus would come along. This is so powerful. Jesus would come along and take 600 plus commandments and reduce it to two. And then... And then in his final act, he reduced it to one. A single command, a single commandment that would serve as the unifying ethic for his brand new movement. You, me, the church. So Jesus makes his way down to the water. He says, John, my friend, 
baptized me. And John's like, are you kidding? I've just told all these people, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I'm not going to baptize you. I think Jesus smiled and put his hand on his shoulder and says, John, you must do this. Because this people, these people must know that I'm willing to identify with the new that's coming, the new that you've introduced, that we together are introducing something new. And so I'm a part of you as you're a part of me. So baptize me, my friend. And he did. And so it began. God's promise to Abraham would finally be fulfilled through a man who came as a lamb to take away the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin. But before we get to that, there are sermons to preach. There are stories to tell. There are diseases to heal. There are crowds to feed. And there are tables to topple. And why did Jesus do all of that? He did all of that so his audience would know with certainty, so that we could know with certainty that God was up to something new for you, for me, and for the world. Well, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd like some bonus content on this message and all the messages that we're doing between now and Easter, I want to invite you again to go to 90.today. That's 90.today and sign up. At 90.today, you'll find a host of different ways to engage deeper with our church and the extraordinary life of Jesus. We'll see you next time.